0: Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast dedicated to discussing those titles chosen by the Criterion Collection for Preservation. I'm Nate Myers, joined by Matt Peterson, as we discuss the Silence of the Lambs on our third episode. On Valentine's Day, 1991... Audiences discovered Jonathan Demme's serial killer film The Silence of the Lambs as it made its nationwide premiere in U.S. cinemas. Becoming not only a critical success, but a cultural phenomenon, the Jodie Foster-led thriller combines the mystery and horror genres as it tells the tale of Clarice Starling, an FBI trainee in pursuit of the serial killer Buffalo Bill. At the height of her critical and commercial success, Foster delivers her most famous performance as the young FBI recruit who must match wits with the imprisoned, brilliant psychiatrist Dr. Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter, portrayed by Anthony Hopkins in a career-defining role. As Lecter and Starling form a unique bond with the FBI trainee training details of her tortured background in exchange for clues as to Buffalo Bill's true identity, the plot navigates the harrowing and torturous world of murder as it simultaneously examines the political and bureaucratic procedures of law enforcement. Under the competent direction of Jonathan Demme, Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins anchor a stellar cast in a thought-provoking, disturbing, and morbidly humorous exploration of America's fascination with violence and death. Ted Talley's screenplay adapts Thomas Harris's 1988 novel into one of the most iconic films of the 1990s, which grossed over $270 million worldwide, against a $19 million budget. Sweeping the top five Oscars of Best Picture, Actor, Actress, Director, and Screenplay, The Silence of the Lambs is the only horror film to have gained such awards recognition and spawned a sequel, two prequels, and a television series in its wake, as well as many imitators. Despite initial controversies alleging homophobia, sexism, and exploitation of violence, the movie is now widely considered a modern classic, Released by the Criterion Collection on DVD in 1998, with the transfer completed in consultation with cinematographer Tak Fujimoto, The Silence of the Lambs is presented with a commentary by director Jonathan Demme, stars Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster, screenwriter Ted Talley, and FBI agent John Douglas, as well as seven deleted scenes, film-to-storyboard comparisons, and a series of notes from the FBI's investigations with real serial killers. Join Matt and me as we discuss the grandfather of the modern serial killer film, The Silence of the Lambs. So, Matt, as uh, we begin our discussion here today, I think one thing that we maybe just want to note just regarding this podcast in general is that the assumption is that anybody who's listening to it has seen the movie or it otherwise doesn't at least care about having the movie's details in their, in its plot revealed to them. Uh, right. So even though this movie's 25 years old now, anybody who's uh, not seen it, uh, you know, be forewarned that a spoiler alert, uh, we're not going to hold anything back in terms of it. Uh, so listen at your own discretion.
1: Kind of like a commentary track. It's probably best to uh, right. listen after you've seen the film.
0: So this is a movie we've been friends for 15 years And I know we've talked about this movie in reference to other things. Uh, We went back in 2002. We saw Red Dragon in the theater. uh, But I don't think we've ever actually had a full-blown conversation about The Silence of the Lambs, even though it has come up in various instances and conversations for us. So this will be our first time really having an in-depth conversation. Uh, So with that, I'm curious to actually hear from you. Uh, What are your thoughts about the movie as a movie?
1: Well, I I recognize its place in... in you know cinema history at this point i mean i think there's enough uh time that has passed since it's come out to to say that it is a classic um it's kind of entered the the realm of pop culture in many ways uh i've personally always had very mixed feelings about the film i mean i i, I think i i've always kind of felt it's overrated uh i think it's very strong and there's strong performances um it it, it is an important film uh in that it ushered in really the genre of the serial killer film and it's always i as you know i'm I'm not a huge fan of the horror genre so that maybe uh informs my feelings about the film to a degree but it's always been a genre that's kind of kind of puzzled me in terms of why it's so popular uh, I do like a good detective story and I do like a uh, good mystery and this film handles those elements uh, very expertly uh, but the, the subject matter is uh, is off-putting and and uh, the fact that the film does kind of make Hannibal Lecter in particular uh, sort of this audience favorite uh, has always kind of gotten under my skin uh, certainly he's depicted as a, a, a twisted, heinous character, but the the film kind of wants you to root for him at certain moments in the movie, and, and that has always uh, put me off uh, in, in some ways. So Mixed feelings, but uh, an overall sense of the film. I think it's very strong. It's very well directed, very well acted. I can see why it uh, won the accolades it did. So it's certainly worth seeing, but uh, I do have my my issues with it.
0: It's it's called a horror film by many. I'm not sure that that's the most accurate way of describing it. It certainly isn't a horror film in the traditional sense of what we think of as a slasher film. Uh, It doesn't have those elements to it. It doesn't really have uh, any supernatural component to it, so it doesn't have that beat. I really think of it more as being the kind of film that Alfred Hitchcock would make. It does have horror components. It might be more accurate to really think of it as as a thriller, in my own personal opinion, as so much uh, as a horror film. But nonetheless, I I can see your reservations about it. You can't deny the fact that it has a huge cultural impact, the various references to it throughout the pop culture, it was a huge huge uh, sensation back when it came out in 1991 I can recall before the film was made knowing, or before the film was seen by me, knowing who Hannibal Lecter was and being terrified of this this particular figure, this character I don't know that I necessarily see it as having um, I don't have any particular moral reservation about this film, I think its point is that it's talking about our fascination with violence uh, as a country. And particularly when it came out, this is in the late 80s that the book is written. It's the early 90s when it is made. And you have at that particular time a wide variety of different serial killers that had been dominating the news, Ted Ted Bundy being the most famous of them. And I think it was really trying to address that particular moment in history uh and uh, in our country the fact that we had this rise the spike of serial killers and interests and the movie really takes it seriously uh it the one of the things I, I when i was watching it recently uh that was striking to me is how much they plaster red white and blues throughout the film uh you have it very explicitly at times where they have american flags draped in backgrounds and uh in buffalo bills um in his quarters, he's got American flags around. Uh, you also have just in terms of some color palettes that are created and woven into different scenes, this mixing of the colors of the American flag. So there's definitely, I think on the part of the film an interest in talking about this as an American phenomenon, an American way of looking at life and, uh, how we have become ourselves spectators to violence and in our own way, having this perverse kind of connection to it. Uh, the figure of Hannibal Lecter is an interesting one. I think that in and of itself is beyond just this movie. He's, he's obviously resonated with audiences in a certain way. Uh, and I think it's now hard to, sometimes in our own imagination, think about the portrayal of him in this film as on its own because there's this TV show I've never seen the TV show. Uh, there's the different movies. I saw a couple of them. I haven't seen all of them. And I don't think this film takes him as a hero. Uh that's the accusation that's made about it. That certainly was what people said at the time. That was where the controversy about it being exploitative and glorifying violence comes from. But it never treats him as anything other than a true villain. He's not a protagonist. He is a threat. He's a threat to anybody and everybody. And uh, there's actually in the ending, you know, they, they capture Buffalo Bill. Uh, he is, you know, killed, and he is now off the streets. You know, so you get this feel: oh, it must be a happy ending. But the movie actually ends with Hannibal Lecter being out and about, and it's not a happy ending. The film does not end happily. It ends with the sense of you might solve one problem of violence, but another will emerge and take its place, and you're going to constantly, throughout human history, human civilization, be dealing with this. And it's rather a chilling ending. I don't think it's one that in any way, shape, or form was meant to be uh, by the the makers taken as promoting Hannibal Lecter, calling us to have any sort of admiration for him, perhaps a respect, uh, respect for the evil that he brings that uh, has the power to destroy, and therefore we should respect it and take it seriously. Uh, But I don't think that it's trying to say anything positive about him or that the film itself is doing anything that I would consider to be immoral here, whereas perhaps audiences did take it and go that direction
1: yeah i don 't think the filmmakers want to depict him as a hero, but I do think uh, you know, looking at the ending in particular it, it it ends with a joke right i mean his his conversation with Clarice ends with a joke, and it 's meant to be this this pitch black dark joke but i think the audience uh is meant to see it as comedic in a way or at least that's how it comes across if that was not the intent i think that's how it does come across and the uh the former uh, uh doctor at the uh the penitentiary there that was overseeing hannibal uh, the film seems to want us to uh uh, hope for him to get his comeuppance and and here's hannibal about to deliver that right so I, I, that's always kind of been unsettling to me i mean that, i'm okay with dark comedy and i i, I think that this film does want to go in that direction or does end up being uh uh firmly in that direction uh but you know whether or not that was the intent of the filmmakers i guess is, is a question worth worth discussing
0: well, I suspect it was meant to be a joke. I, I mean, there is a lacing of the film with dark comedy throughout. And I, I personally don't think that's a bad thing. I think uh, it's actually uh, something that's necessary for the film because, as you noted, the, the the subject matter is off-putting. It is an unsettling story. But nonetheless, it ultimately uh, can be borne by the audience because they do lace it with humor not a out-of-place humor, but rather a humor that works within the world that is being created on screen. And so that scene, definitely there is meant to be that, but that's Hannibal Lecter. He's shown to be this witty character. He does have these features to him. And the performance by Anthony Hopkins, uh, I think, doesn't in any way, shape, or form want you to say, aha, this guy is getting his comeuppance, but more or rather of, yeah, this is what Hannibal Lecter's going to do. And so Kaluri Starling and the FBI have a minor victory uh, in this particular ongoing question of, of violence and murder, but they didn't end the war. It's going to continue on. And so I don't necessarily think of it as intended by anybody on the audience, or by anyone on the part of the filmmaking, uh, to have looked at this as being a particularly happy moment. It's rather just a, this is how it will work. And yeah, Hannibal Lecter doesn't see the problem with what he's doing. Uh, because he is the monster, but it's it's probably worth just noting ha- Anthony Hopkins' performance, and and just you know we've been already talking here about Hannibal Lecter this pretty much the whole time. The character is actually a supporting character; he's not a lead. Uh, he Hopkins won the Best Actor Oscar for it, but this is a supporting role. He's in it for about a little, just a sliver over twenty minutes of this film. And yet he is commanding. He does have a way of permeating it. Obviously, this is why they made movies about him afterwards and not so much about Clarice Starling. But it is not the heart of the film. It's it's a supporting role, one that is shrouded in mystery. They don't really delve much into the background of who is Hannibal Lecter. They don't try to explain him. That's partly why I don't think it's trying to present him as a hero because it never excuses him. And it never actually gives us sort of any way of trying to interpret him or say, well, gosh, if only he had not been born into an abusive family or this or that. None of that kind of information is presented so that we just are confronted with him as this force uh, that is frightening and able to overcome uh, at any moment.
1: So, you know, I find myself wondering if this film is sophisticated to the point of uh, making the audience comfortable with the idea of of such a monster uh because again kind of going back to how the film depicts hannibal certainly he's twisted certainly he's disturbing but those witty lines and those uh, dark jokes and uh his uh, way with words does make him appealing to the audience in a way and uh, just looking back at the american public's fascination with with serial killers and, and crime in general, uh this film could be seen as hypocritical in a way if it's trying to make a comment on how we are so focused on, on these dark things, yet its uh, success is based on that interest in the first place. So uh you know, a question is is the film being sophisticated about this, is this is the film trying to call attention to uh the American public's fascination uh in, in a uh you know self-referential kind of way or uh is it capitalizing on those interests uh to uh, to its own you know for its own success so uh, you could look at it i guess from a lot of different angles in terms of you know thematically what the film's trying to do but again as a whole i've always felt that you know criticisms against the depiction of hannibal uh as being uh you know, sympathetic and how that's problematic. I think there's some merit to that. Uh, but as you said, he is a supporting character in the film. Uh, he's not the primary focus. He is a, a vessel or a means, uh, for the, the plot to move forward. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's the strength of Anthony Hopkins performance that I think, uh, makes him seem more like a lead than he is.
0: Well, and I think what Hopkins gets right in his performance is he he doesn't make the mistakes that an American actor would have made with it. Initially, Gene Hackman was going to take the role. Uh, There was talk of Dustin Hoffman at one point, Robert De Niro, other people of that nature, these method actors. And I think they all would have botched it because they would have been so theatrical about it and they would have put out there the sense of his inner torment or the the psychology of the character, whereas Hopkins really puts all that underneath the surface. We don't see it. We don't understand it. And that's why I don't think it's hypocritical. I think it's it's one of those things where if you if you want to show something, you have to show it, and this has to this chooses to show it. Doesn't need you don't need to make a movie about serial killers if you don't want to, but this chose to, and so if you're going to do it, you got to do it right, and I think they do it right in that they make this man a very tortured soul that you can't ever fully understand, and so it doesn't give the audience a cheap understanding or a cheap catharsis, saying okay, it's all good, we figured it out. And that might be why there is still fascination, because we do want to, we have as a human instinct a desire to want to understand the anomalies, to understand this kind of character. This is why we have psychology in the first place. This is why we have, uh, you know, an FBI unit like what we see depicted in the film that is going out there trying to investigate, not just simply to stop, but actually to investigate, to come to some sort of comprehension of this evil So I don't know that the movie is doing anything different than what a psychologist would do in the real world or what you would find any other uh, kind of artistic expression trying to do when you are confronted with this as a phenomenon in our culture. Uh, But the reason why I think it ultimately doesn't fall into the trap of being, like I say, a natural-born killer, which came out just a few years afterwards, and being hypocritical is because that movie focused entirely on it's serial killers. It focused entirely upon them, made them the protagonists of the story, whereas the protagonist here is Clarice Starling, and while Anthony Hopkins is the performance that lives on in our culture, and his character is the one that is resonating, I suppose, with people uh, within the you know the blogosphere within. Uh, the uh, popular popular culture, references, uh, trivia sort of items, really Foster's performance is the better of the two. She was really the one that had to hold up this entire film and is the heart of it. Uh, You know, what's not really commented upon is the fact that she's giving a performance uh, in which she is called upon to play a wounded soul uh, that is trying to make her way in a a traditionally male environment it doesn't telegraph its feminist ideology it just simply is dealing with this as a reality that happens Uh, it's not trying to make any larger statement i don't think it's just showing the experience of this one character Uh, but because she handles it so well there is a certain profundity within her performance and within the way she crafts the character of cleary starling she shows her to be a true protagonist. I'd say argue, arguably the the most important female character in cinema for the 1990s. Uh, you could have a argument, I think, for Margie Gunderson in Fargo, or perhaps you could have one for Sarah Connor, same year of 91 in Terminator 2. Uh, but the, this character uh, of Clarice Starling is really ultimately, I think, the heart of this movie and the reason why it does work because we as the audience become really her. And I think this is accomplished mostly on the strength of Jodie Foster's, Foster's performance. It's well-written, it's well-directed, but it's her performance that makes this character.
1: Yeah, she does kind of convey that that uh, perfect combination of strength and fragility in the film. Uh, another thing I've always kind of struggled with, and it may seem like I'm nitpicking the film throughout this podcast, but... Uh, it kind of reminded me of the JJ Abrams Star Trek reboot <laughs> in that okay here's a, a trainee that is uh shoved into this very high profile investigation you know what is the likelihood uh, of her being this heavily involved i guess you could argue that well, all these other agents are occupied looking for buffalo bill as well but it does seem kind of unlikely that uh, a trainee would be pulled uh for this uh, you know beyond the the idea that okay uh Scott Glenn's character is picking her because she's a, uh, an attractive woman and uh sees her as the key to kind of unlocking Lecter. And so that that works in that way, but but to see her so central in the investigation as it rolls on maybe a little hard to swallow. But th- that aside, um very strong performance. Uh definitely is the anchor of this film. She does get overshadowed by uh Anthony Hopkins quite a bit. It, it, Back to Hopkins just briefly, and this kind of folds into uh, Foster's performance too, the fact that you you felt that Hopkins wasn't entirely theatrical, um, I guess I would kind of disagree with that because... uh, you know i look at hopkins performance compared to say brian cox and manhunter uh and, and we can maybe touch on manhunter more later but um brian cox is much more reserved when if you actually look at those performances side by side and i would, I would argue even more chilling in a way because he seemed so together and so logical uh whereas you look at um uh, anthony hopkins performance it's it's more flashy in many ways and it's more theatrical and more uh you know, more over the top, you could say, to a degree. I think it works very well in the context of the film because the film I find to be very theatrical as well. Uh, just looking at how the, uh, the jail cells are depicted in the beginning, you know, it's this kind of dank basement, the, uh, the rusty radiator in the hallway, and uh, the, the red lighting uh, before she, she enters that kind of gauntlet uh, uh, to uh, approach Hannibal's cell and also uh the scene later in the film uh in i want to say it's in baltimore when hannibal lecter is in his cell in that uh that ballroom setting oh it's uh, Uh, tennessee no tennessee i'm sorry uh very theatrical right it's it's in this giant ballroom it's got this huge hot spotlight uh on him in in his cell as he reads his books and and sketches so it, it has this kind of Operatic sort of uh, depiction to it, uh, which culminates in in the the death scenes of the the police officers and how they're staged uh, by by Hannibal. So a, a very operatic, very theatrical sort of presentation, not only uh, the film as a whole, but uh, something created by the character of Hannibal as well, because he he loves spectacle and he loves drama and he loves kind of providing that. That heightened sense of reality, uh, but but back to to Jodie Foster, our, our Foster's performance, she has to kind of bring all that down to earth, right? She has to be the the character that we relate to as the audience. So where we're witnessing her journey into this world, she's a new trainee being thrust into this very very serious, very high profile investigation. So we definitely relate to her more uh, than anyone else, and. And I'd agree with you, too, that, you know, this is not really uh, a feminist uh, performance or or it's not something that pushes that as an agenda, in my opinion. Uh, I would agree with you that it just shows her in this situation, right? So she is in a very macho kind of male-dominated career. Uh, like it or not and 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 she's trying to find traction in that kind of environment and and we see that played out visually a couple times where she enters the elevator in the beginning of the film and she's surrounded by a bunch of people that are clearly bigger and taller i'm sure they cast all those people very specifically a certain height to kind of make that effect uh, clear and then later in the uh, the funeral home a very similar situation when all the 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 troopers there are kind of staring her down and I think I lost count how many times she got hit on in this movie too so uh, she kind of gets put through the ringer in many many ways Uh, but but comes out on top and uh, does prove herself to be very professional competent and uh, able to to meet the challenges that she's faced with so it's a it's a classic performance it's a great performance and yeah, again, one I think that is uh, overshadowed by by Anthony Hopkins, probably unfairly. You know, I don't know that I would say I think
0: it's overshadowed. At least not within the film itself. If you watch the movie, hers is the most. Well, uh, at least
1: for among public opinion, I would say.
0: Right. Yeah. No. I mean, definitely the the character Hannibal Lecter is the one that people remember. Partly, you know. I actually I I watched a fairly significant portion of Hannibal the sequel that came out in two thousand one uh, after this and. Uh, I watched that about maybe two weeks ago, and Jodie Foster did not reprise the role, and Julianne Moore, who is herself a perfectly competent actress, came in and took over the reins. And you could definitely tell just from seeing those two different people taking the same character just how great Jodie Foster was and how much she made this movie about Clarice Starling, because... Boy, she uh, Julianne Moore's Clarice Starling is overshadowed by Hannibal Lecter. She's actually, I think, overshadowed by basically every other character in that movie. And in this one, within the film itself, anybody watching it, I think you'd be hard-pressed to convince yourself that while watching this movie that Clarice Starling is not the lead, is not the most important character, is not the one that we're really truly rooting for. Uh, You do kind of start to root for Hannibal Lecter in in the sequel in Hannibal, which ultimately is why I didn't care for that film particularly, Uh, but this one you don't. You fear him because he is even a potential threat to Clarice, and Clarice is our access. She is our person, and I, I think of two particular scenes that highlight this. The first is the scene you referenced it, Matt, in terms of the autopsy scene, which is taking place at the funeral home, and how she gets this group of sheriff deputies out of the autopsy. Uh, room so that they can actually do their investigation. The FBI can get rid of the local law enforcement, and there's a beautiful way in which Jodie Foster plays with it. She's doing an accent the whole movie. You actually really kind of lose sight of the fact that she's doing an accent. You know, we think of how many performances people love of Oscar going to the guy or the gal that's making a, an accent, but this one it's almost forgotten. She's actually not a southerner. That she <laughs> Jodie Foster is not a southerner. She doesn't have a southern accent. She does it, and not only does she do it, she does it in such a way that she keeps. Uh, clearly trying to hide her southern accent. It's a source of shame to the character. But then in this particular moment, she knows with those deputies that if she lays on the thickest West Virginian accent that you can put on, that it's going to actually kind of have a force and an impact on them, and it's going to get them out of there. And uh, So it was really just a beautifully acted scene. But the other, and the most telling one, is the one in which uh, it is that scene in the Tennessee uh, ballroom uh, very beautifully filmed. Uh, this is not trying to be a documentary. It's 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 not afraid to have style. It's not afraid to have a panache to it. Uh, there's a lot of wit in its direction. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, psychologizing, I guess you could say, in its set direction. Uh, the The production design is very much clearly trying to evoke for the audience the reality of the of the minds that are at play, and so. It's not interested in realism in that particular way because it's trying to get more, I think, into a psychological storytelling than anything else. But in that particular scene where you have that beautiful close-up of Jodie Foster uh, having this great exchange with Anthony Hopkins and she tells the story which gives us the heart of the movie, the title, The Silence of the Lambs, about when she was a little girl and her uh, orphaned, her father has been killed and she goes away to be at the farm and she hears the slaughtering of the lambs, and she tries to save the one. They wouldn't move, and she has to go take one. I was thinking, as I watched it recently, that every other director would have decided they're going to cut away, they're going to do flashback, they're going to have her narrating versus us seeing these images of it. And actually, that's what Demi had initially planned to do with this scene, but based on the power of her performance, he just left it in the close-up. He didn't bother to add anything else. He just let her control it. And I tell you, I got, I have a mental image of what was going on with the young Clary Starling. I have a very clear picture in my mind talking right now about what those lambs sounded like, what they were doing, and it's all coming from her performance. It's a beautiful, beautiful performance uh, that has fragility. It has uh, of strength. It has uh, humor. It has heart. Uh, I love the way she handles the fact that she gets hit on. It's not sort of a, oh, my gosh, such a sexist culture she's actually sometimes a little flattered by it, and sometimes she's a little put off by it. She takes it differently. Uh, This is a real character. This is a real person. This is the way people actually act and do things. And that's why I I consider this to be probably the best character, uh, female character in cinema from the 1990s, at least American cinema from the 1990s, just the way she handles all these different beats and handles it so perfectly. Uh, You know, Clary Starling? is based on this movie be a person i want to meet in real
1: life it's probably a good time to talk about uh just uh, the visuals in this film and, and how it's shot and and especially the close-ups the use of close-ups and the use of point of view shots i guess are very distinctive and i think uh demi style uh it's it marked his whole career it, it has yeah so it's not just this picture certainly uh i, I you know i i feel kind of torn on that aspect of it as well i think in the in the scene the the lamb scene it's brilliantly effective right so it's direct camera address on the whole uh very kind of shallow focus uh very very intense close-ups very extreme close-ups especially on hannibal and his you know very uh hot overhead lighting to kind of almost give them give him kind of this demonic look uh, as he's uh, coaxing this information out of out of Clarice, but it's it's something that I noticed was very inconsistent in the film as well. That there will be shots and scenes where it'll be a, a POV shot, and then the reverse angle will almost look like a POV, but they're actually kind of slightly off axis, and you know, talking to the other character. So it, it kind of creates this unsettling effect, and it does put the audience right in the film. To say, okay, you're having this experience that that Clarice is having, and and there are moments where there's a clear direct POV uh, uh, from Clarice's standpoint. She enters a room or enters a house, uh, so very effective, but kind of inconsistent sometimes as well. So, uh, what are your what are your thoughts on that style?
0: Overall, you know, I'm not a big fan of direct camera address for the most part. I think that Demi overdoes it he uses it all the time you know this is actually Demi's first film uh that really that wasn't a comedy in the 80s he was mostly known for doing comedic films married to mob being the most famous of them Uh, but uh, another one something wild which is just a wonderful movie I'd highly recommend it uh, to anybody who's interested Uh, yet this is this is kind of the way he likes to stage his his actors and his it, it for the most part I think Uh, has not worked in other films. I do think it works here. There are times in the film where I think it ultimately is not to the betterment of a scene, Uh, particularly when Clarice is dealing with her fellow FBI trainee. There's this scene where they are talking to one another, doing direct camera address, and it just doesn't work. But it does work, I think, in those scenes where Hannibal Lecter and her are talking. Uh, I think it helps to get the sense of urgency, the sense of threat, uh, the way in which he's getting in her face, uh, we're being attacked by him. There's uh, that's, That scene with uh, the Tennessee courthouse uh, is really nicely done because you have him first kind of, yes, direct camera address, but he's not in a close-up, and it keeps getting progressively closer, 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 closer. So very well staged in that regard. Um, but ultimately, it doesn't make for necessarily the most... Glamorous of of cinematography, uh, it it has a certain way in which it kind of can be repetitive, uh, but I think overall it does work in this particular movie, uh, and I think it also works because it shows that the film's more interested in character than it is in anything else, and the rest of it is all there to sort of help us just to get into the minds of these characters so that we can learn about them and then learn from them something about the way in which violence takes root in our in our humanity and takes root in our culture.
1: Yeah, the the scene with uh, Clarice and that other FBI agent, I agree, that was the one where it definitely was off-putting more, but uh, maybe a little more discipline in terms of when that uh, technique was used would have been would have made it a little more effective, but I and the other films of Demi's that I've seen, uh, it it does kind of pull me out of the film more, so yeah, I would agree, and this film works pretty well on the whole, but it's a device that um, is overused by him, I'm afraid.
0: By no means would I consider myself a Jonathan Demi fan. Uh, There's a lot of his films I haven't even bothered to see. Uh, You know, the fact that his remake of The Manchurian Candidate is enough reason, in my opinion, to take away his filmmaking credentials for life. Because a <laughs> you just you don't remake The Manchurian Candidate. You know you just that's one of those films you don't touch, and you certainly don't remake it the way he remade it. So I have my own uh, love hate relationship, I suppose, with Jonathan Demme. He's got a couple of other films that I've liked. This one, I think, he has really just, and it's probably more of a fluke than anything, but he really knocked out of the park i think in his direction here there's a, a yeah. wonderful wit and i think actually a lot of it uh, is is missed but it comes actually from the sound design uh he he directed a film with a great amount of attention to the way in which it sounds and that's mostly uncommented on when people talk about this film but there's a few different things he does that i think are really effective uh particularly when you're dealing with the scene in Tennessee Uh, when you have Hannibal Lecter uh, and Clarice talking to one another there's this way in which there's initially he plays with the echo and the sense of isolation and her desperation and then when it gets into her telling the story about the lambs there's this subtle little wind on the soundtrack, and it makes no sense, right, in terms of the actual space itself, but it makes sense cinematically. So it's beautifully designed sound-wise. Also, when Hannibal Lecter talking to the senator, right, the senator is offering him the deal, and if he is able to give her the name of Buffalo Bill, then he gets released – there's this beautiful way in which they play with the sound design of the airplanes. Uh, as he gets under the senator's skin, as he gets into her, and is able to uh, get her to basically clam up and to you know to break this. Sound of this airplane getting ready to take off just starts to come and it keeps building, building, building and overtakes it all, giving you the psychology of the senator and, and the people around her and how Hannibal Lecter has completely disturbed their space, disturbed their life uh, just by the way he's talking to them. It makes no sense, right? There, nobody's going to be taking a plane off right there with all these different people around with this you know serial killer right there in the airplane hangar, but it works In terms of the story, it works cinematically. It obviously is again. This is not a documentary. This is a stylized film, and I I attribute this very beautifully designed film sound wise uh, to Jonathan Demi. He did a great job working with his sound team. And there's the old saying: "Sound is sound is sixty percent. The picture is forty percent." And I think that this movie proves that point. The sound makes such a world of difference in how we react to these scenes, to these characters, and it even has a certain thematic value to it.
1: Yeah, it does have great sound design, and certainly there are elements that are amped up for, for dramatic effect. And the the first entrance into the, the prison where we we meet Hannibal, everything is kind of turned up to 11 in terms of the the sounds of the the gates opening and closing and exactly and just how many gates we have to pass through and kind of this descent into hell sort of thing uh very effective kind of reminds me of kurosawa's use of sound just how you know he's taking kind of those elemental sounds wind uh weather elements and just things that would be uh present in the environment but are are very carefully selected and carefully amped up uh, at at key moments. So it it is kind of a subliminal thing that you wouldn't necessarily notice, but it does make an impact on the scene. And um, you may have not noticed, but your brain did, right?
0: Right. And, you know, I think even there's just some kind of humorous things he does with sound that we might even take for granted now. Uh, the The decisions he makes with music in this film, uh, first of all, Howard Shore's score is, I think, very effective. Uh, but yeah, also, there's score. some there's some source music that's done that's very, uh, very nicely incorporated. Uh, when Hannibal Lecter has his his you know escape, they have him listening to Bach's Goldberg variations. I think it's Variation Seven that he's listening to, and. You no, know, we take it for granted. Oh, the sophisticated serial killer—he listens to classical music and is a very cultured person. At the time, that was shocking, you know. And the yeah. effect of it is that
1: it's kind of a perverse thing,
0: right? It, it, it plays against your expectation. You know, classical music has a certain way in which it operates upon us, and it subverts that, and so it creates the unease in the audience. On um, one level, you're hearing this beautiful composition, you're, you know, terrible things are happening. You. You have this wonderful way in which uh, it helps us to sort of get at the fact that this man is perverting the natural order. And so that's where I think you know there's a, a, a trope, I guess you could call it now, that was introduced into cinema by this particular film, at least introduced to it in a successful way. I'm sure somebody else might have done it first but this is the way where it really kind of takes off and be entered into American cinema. The other thing was uh, the song Goodbye Horses by Q Lazarus, which is being played by Buffalo Bill. He has his uh, dance routine and everything with it. Uh, it's one of those songs, if I ever hear it now, I can only think of this movie, uh, just yeah. like when you watch, <laughs> when you hear stuck in the middle with you, you think of Reservoir Dogs. Uh, yeah. So this is uh, a song that the, the lyrics of it are about a man sort of transcending the material world. It's a very Hindu song. And on one level it works because what is Buffalo Bill trying to do? He's trying to just transcend his his gender. He's trying to become a female, right? Uh, so it has a certain thematic link to the character. Uh, but you have also this haunting kind of melody that now it's just it's wedded in my brain to Buffalo Bill uh, as, he's, as he's dancing and uh, getting ready for um, you know his his conversion, I guess you could call it, into into a woman. So good good use of source music as well uh, throughout this movie.
1: How many times has uh, Thomas Harris kind of recycled the same plot? Because uh, I, I I suppose we can talk about Manhunter for a bit if you're okay with that. I mean, we don't have to focus on that too much. But uh, I kind of was making a list of of very similar plot points between the two films. I I guess I haven't really read the novels. Uh, Was Red Dragon written before or after Silence of the Lambs? Do you know?
0: Red Dragon was the first novel. I have not read it. I read The Silence of the Lambs a long time ago, and honestly, I can't remember it particularly well. I think the movie tracks it pretty closely, as I recall, but I'm I'm sure there's a few things. I I seem to recall Jack Crawford, the director for Clarice, is a much larger role in the novel and kind of disappears in the movie. Uh, but otherwise it, it kind of follows the same beats
1: yeah so both stories you know it's there's an outsider brought in to investigate a murder right so uh in the case of manhunter william peterson's character will graham uh he's been forced into retirement by this traumatic situation uh Silence of the lambs kind of goes the other direction here's a new trainee outsider brought in they both kind of haunted pasts in a way uh Lector is needed to track a killer right he's he's the vessel. He's He's the brain the manipulator uh, he can see clues that no one else can and, and by his own for his own entertainment or his own uh, uh, amusement he, he is guiding the protagonist toward the killer or away from the killer whatever suits him in the moment uh, the killer is uh, depicted with a theme of emergence so in the case of manhunter red dragon, Uh, the killer is becoming the dragon, right? And in this film, it's uh, becoming, uh, uh, you could say, a gender change. You could say uh, the the moth is is a very symbolic um, element in the film depicting the the killer's transformation. Uh, In both cases, there's a a damsel in distress, so Joan Allen's character in in Manhunter, and then we have the, the senator's daughter in the well, uh, and ends with, uh, kind of the boss fight, the one-on-one confrontation, uh, with the killer. So the kind of looking at, you know, alien and aliens, those films have basically the same beats. These two stories are, are essentially the same. And it, it's, it's interesting that, uh, that an author and even a series of films could be so successful with, with, um, such uh, similar plot points. I guess it shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, there's a lot of films and a lot of stories that just replicate the same formula over and over and are successful. But uh, these are two, seen as two very distinct stories or distinct films. And the films themselves are very different, of course. And that's a separate conversation, but essentially the same story.
0: Well, Manhunter really wasn't a success. Uh, Certainly uh, commercially it was not a success. That's why It ultimately changed hands. It went out of uh, Dino De Laurentiis' hands and into the hands of uh, Orion, and so that's where, of course, you got an entirely different cast, entirely different crew to make this one. Uh, Manhunter, to me, is... It's just a fascinating portal back to the 1980s. I don't know that I really find the movie to be all that particularly great. Uh, I think if... We hadn't had the Silence of the Lambs; it would be completely forgotten at this point. I think you know, people people go back to look at it because of this particular movie. It has its own merits to it in some ways, but I, I've never been a particularly huge fan of that film. Uh, I, in many ways, I actually preferred the Red Dragon uh, that was released with Edward Norton and Anthony Hopkins uh, reprising his role as Hannibal Lecter uh, to out. Manhunter. Um, that's not to say that. <laughs> That's not to say that it's a perfect movie itself, but I ultimately think I found that one to have, at least in the characterization of uh, of um, uh, Edward Norton, a much better lead performance uh, in it.
1: I'm a sucker for Michael Mann, so I, I think. Well, shame
0: on you, shame on you. <laughs> I mean, <if> Miami <laughs> public, vice enemies and public Enemies, Public Enemies, destroyed him for you. I just, I don't know what I can do for you, Matt
1: you know miami vice has its merits the 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 theatrical cut not the director's cut uh but i I think people go back to that film for michael mann and not just for for hannibal uh but there's certainly a lot of fascination to see okay what was hannibal's first on-screen depiction like and you know his, his role is even smaller in manhunter than it is in this film but there uh, man hunters is, is definitely worth seeing i recommend it but it is uh, i agree very much a product of of my advice in the 80s and it's firmly entrenched in that world but right uh great um some great visuals and great atmosphere which michael man is kind of known for but
0: no there are successes to it i just think it doesn't hold up well this i, I will say when i watched the science of Lamps just now i thought to myself if this came out right now in 2016 if it was just being released right now it would work people would go see it they would still react to it. Now, granted, we obviously have a whole trajectory now since it came out 25 years ago of people being used to this kind of story or used to this kind of presentation of characters. But uh, if it had never been released in 91, they didn't have the natural, of course, uh, ripple effect that it's had on the culture since then. Uh, and it came out today. I think it would still work. People would see it. And obviously it obviously would have to be taken as a period piece because it's clearly set in 1991. But there is a very t- timeless kind of quality to it. That's why I liken it to Alfred Hitchcock. I can watch North by Northwest with you know high schoolers right now, and they're going to take it, and they're going to run with it and have a great time, or Vertigo, or Rear Window. And that's the kind of film that Jonathan Demme was able to create here. And I think it ultimately is not just his work, but also the work of Ted Talley. He won the screenplay... Uh, Oscar for this particular work and it's it's just an excellent example of screenwriting 101 which uh, pretty much seems like every major tentpole film nowadays needs to have its writers go take that class uh, but you have right now in this film it's the most smooth and incredible of screen transitions uh, I love the way he he does it he'll have a common theme, theme he does throughout it not to, to a point where it gets obnoxious but a question gets asked in one scene and then, boom, the line of dialogue that uh, answers it is the first line for the next scene. And it's just this really nice, effective, efficient storytelling technique. You set something up and then you have the payoff in the next scene. It's just a very smartly written script. Uh, I also love the fact that it doesn't just throw Buffalo Bill at you right away. He's not into this film. We hear about him, we know about him, but he doesn't show up until after 30 minutes have passed. So you've got a quarter of the film behind you. You've gotten to know Cleary Starling. You're getting to know Hannibal Lecter. You're getting a sense of who these people are so that when stuff starts to actually happen, you actually care. These are real characters. You actually know something about them. You actually are invested in them. You want them to succeed. And movies today don't do that. They just throw a bunch of sensations at you. This is a smart script, uh, and I, th- I think that it makes the the smart decision to put character before plot. Plot's very well executed, but at the heart of this is a screenplay that's interested in its characters.
1: It was still stupid for Clarice to go in the basement.
0: Yeah. No. Well. Yeah. No. It's just, it's it's the conventions of movies. I don't deny that at all. So, uh, but i, I do to kind say, of want
1: one of those fbi cakes though that they had at the end yes uh, that was an impressive cake
0: yes yes it was no i have to say i mean for a trainee she had a hell of a uh you know <laughs> i think the greatest irony would have been if they'd had her go through this and not give her status as an fbi agent because she didn't follow proper procedure by going down to the basement <laughs> <laughs> you know in the real world that's probably what would happen so but it's a movie um The other thing, I think, I just to get back to Demi's direction, there are some subtle things. This movie is not really thought about as being a subtle film, and I can understand that, but there are some subtleties within it that I think are well worth uh, talking about in terms of how he sets things up for us as an audience, and there's actually a fair amount of restraint. It doesn't have a ton of violence in it. It does deal with morose subject matter. But it's pretty quiet uh, for the most part on it. But I love the fact that, for example, we see early on these uh, FBI photos of the killings, right? A buffalo bill and how he's cut the skin off of the people, and the the cut marks and the, the the you know what you see in those pictures uh, has this sort of V shaped uh, slit around the neck. And it's the exact same kind of sweat uh, shape as the sweat stain that's on Clarissa. She's running her obstacle course, and so you have this sense of aha. She, you know, suddenly your brain recognizes there's a connection. She could be at risk. She could be in danger from Buffalo Bill. So it's nice little directorial flourishes like that. Uh, the fact that you know you hear about Hannibal Lecter and how he had at one time in the past attacked a nurse. And you know, had ripped into her face when she accidentally left, uh, leaned over to take his pulse, and he doesn't show you the image of it. You just see the picture from the back. You don't see what actually happened to her. So your imagination has to fill in what you think that looks like or what happened. So he he puts some of the burden on the audience, and that makes a more effective film versus the throw it all out there. Uh, allow my imagination to, to do some of the work. Allow me as the audience to engage the material that you're saying, that you're presenting to me. And with that particular approach, I think Demi really showed some particular restraint in his direction because you could easily make this exploitative. You could make it vulgar. And he doesn't fall into that trap. He, he treats it seriously and with a fair amount of restraint.
1: Yeah, the autopsy scene is another example of that. I, I noticed that too where we're very much playing off the reaction of the characters and, and Clarice in, in particular. So her, you know, dictating into the tape recorder as she's looking at the body and she has this she she just has this kind of remarkable range of emotion just in her eyes. You know, she's trying to be very professional and businesslike. Yet she feels this, you know, deep sadness for for this person that has been murdered and this life that has been cut short. And she almost kind of uh, very, very subtly uh, swallows, um, you know, a, a bit of a tear or, or holds back a tear, I should say. Or, uh, it, it's really a beautiful moment. I almost wish we didn't see the body at all in that scene. Uh, eventually we do cut wide and we do see the uh, the mutilations but uh, overall it, it is pretty restrained I do agree with that uh, and, and we're very much uh, allowed to use our imagination
0: and, uh, and I, I want to just comment here because this is you know just something worth noting it, the, the Silence of the Lambs was released by Orion Pictures uh, which now is basically defunct I think they're trying to make a comeback but
1: yeah, not what they their once television were. division came back, I guess, in, a few years ago.
0: All right. And uh, they started in 1978, and they lasted up until 1991. They went into bankruptcy as, as the movie was winning these Oscars. Uh, so, but it, that was a great studio in terms of finding new talent, working with established talent, allowing people room for great creative movies. Uh, during the course of those years, they, won the, uh, they produced the Best Picture winner for Amadeus, Platoon, Dances with the Wolves, and The Silence of the Lambs. Uh, other films that came out for them were The Terminator, Robocop, First Blood, Hoosiers, uh, Mississippi Burning, Crimes and Misdemeanors. Uh, pretty much anything Woody Allen did, actually, in the 80s, I think, came out through Orion Pictures. Uh, they were the, I guess, Miramax before Miramax came along, and I would say a much more successful studio, at least in terms of quality of product, than what Harvey Weinstein later came up with. Uh, but unfortunately, they just didn't have the kind of money that they needed. Uh, They've had some big flops and disasters and miscalculations and wound up uh, going out of business. But there was a glorious uh, 15-year period thereabout where Orion Pictures was uh, a studio you could go to if you wanted to make a good film and wanted to try to experiment and uh, challenge things and uh, advance the art form of cinema.
1: I think they had their own um, home video label as well. I I remember seeing Platoon branded as uh, an orion home video release so yeah yeah, it's too bad i seeing their logo you know coming up at the beginning is always kind of a nostalgic thing uh and it was kind of nice to to see that again Rewatching this film uh but the um we should probably talk about the criterion release uh for for silence as well sure and it's definitely an older release for criterion uh out of print i believe and it was commanding fairly high prices for a while. It's really uh, nothing
0: now. I, I went yeah. uh so it's yeah, the release do you have it? I, I have the, the I I don't.
1: Release. Uh I think the reason why I never bought it was well, around the time I I was getting a lot of DVDs and ended up picking up Silence of the Lambs. Uh I think it was commanding a pretty high price on the secondary market cuz it already had gone out of print. And it was a non-anamorphic transfer, which kind of kept me away from it, too. I think the big draw was that commentary track as being a sort of exclusive thing for some time. And uh, I just, I, I enjoy the film. I think it's a good film, uh, I, but it's not one that I watch frequently, uh, so it wasn't really one I felt motivated to uh, to seek out on Criterion.
0: This was the very first Criterion Collection DVD I purchased, and I had wow. absolutely no idea what the Criterion Collection was when I got it. I got it back in '98. I got it when it first came out, and I just got it because I loved *The Silence of the Lambs*. I thought it was a great movie, and I was building up my DVD library, which I would recently gotten a DVD uh, player and started buying some different discs. And so I, I bought this particular title, and uh, I've kept on, I've held on to it. I watched it again, uh, the actual Criterion release of it. And it's, as you said, a non-anamorphic transfer, so it's not going to hold up well on the HDTV. Uh, but as far as actually looking at it on its own terms and back when it came out, it really was a, a stellar uh, late 90s transfer. Uh, very smooth picture considering the time in which it was made. Very nice color timing. Uh, so I liked it. The commentary is decent. There's some nice insights there, but I would not recommend anybody go and uh, pick up this particular title unless you're a die-hard Criterion fan or a die-hard Science of the Lambs fan. I'd say pick up the Blu-ray that uh, was put out by Fox. That also has great special features, a wonderful sound mix. Uh, so I would recommend that in its place. Uh, but you can fetch it now actually for a pretty cheap price. I think I saw some used copies of it, you know, for like a dollar. Uh, so you can you can get it at a, a pretty sensible price right now. But honestly put your money towards getting the the blu-ray um but on the topic of it being a criterion release what say you matt does the silence of the lambs merit inclusion in the criterion collection
1: well despite my reservations with the film uh i think it deserves a place in the collection it's an important film Uh, it certainly was kind of a watershed moment in in crime drama uh and in just the the serial killer genre, which we have way too many copycats of these days, uh, certainly iconic performances, uh, solid direction, and and really uh, has its place in in pop culture history, uh, especially with the character of Hannibal Lecter. So, I think I think it's a, a worthy inclusion, and uh, we're unlikely to ever see an upgrade uh, of this title within Criterion but uh it's there and and probably deserves to be there
0: yeah i would say i would not advocate for a upgrade of it since you got such a good quality product already on blu-ray no point in bothering for criteria to go back and redo this one but i am glad it's in the collection i'm glad i happen to have the disc of it uh i do think it's it's a watershed film in that it really showed the potential for what you can do with this kind of material, that this doesn't have to be schlock, it doesn't have to be exploitative, it can be thoughtful, it can be considerate, it can be human. Uh, so I be, I think it's, it's very significant in that regard. I think you have two of the most important performances of the early 90s. Uh, you have certainly a character like Hannibal Lecter that has become a bit of a touchstone for cinema. And then you have... The fact that it historically pulled off on quite a feat, uh, winning the five, the top five Oscars, only three times in the history of the cinema of the Oscars has that happened. You had uh, it happened one night in 1934, and then one flew over the cuckoo's nest in 1975. So it's uh, got a unique role in that sense, and I do think it it shaped the way in which. Not only serial killer films are done, uh, but also just the way in which we maybe approach law enforcement films. uh, But the idea of police procedurals, this, even though it's not a documentary, it does take a good amount of time to show the politics of the way the FBI works. It gets into some of the nitty gritty details about how they do different things and investigations. So it's, uh, I would say, definitely a worthy inclusion in the Criterion Collection and one that i'm glad that uh, we are able to uh, have for future conversations uh, for for cinema
1: it does have uh, a degree of restraint that i think a lot of modern films could learn from so it's it's refreshing to go back and watch a film like this and and to uh, really soak in the characters and the performances and and to see a, a film that has that as the focus versus uh, the shock value of, uh, of violence, or or um, really focusing on on the killer as as the uh, the big draw. So uh, definitely refreshing to to go back and and revisit this.
0: Absolutely no, it's been great chatting about it. I'm I'm always up for this movie. I I try to watch it once a year. Uh, I never tire of seeing it. It's a film that to me is a classic and one that I hope that. Uh, future filmmakers and audiences will be able to learn from and appreciate uh, as I think it does contribute a lot to the art form of cinema and it does also have I I would argue uh, a fairly wonderful way in which it um, it takes a dark disturbing subject matter but I think also does have a certain way in which it presents it for the for the betterment of our thought and our consideration of it. So it's been great chatting with you about it, Matt, and looking forward to our next podcast. For our next podcast, we will be discussing Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love, and we will be releasing that podcast on the first Friday in October. Thank you, and have a good night.